On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we are overjoyed to welcome my good friend, Christy Tate. Christy's work has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, and others. Her debut memoir, Group, was published in October 2020, was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick and a New York Times bestseller. Her new book, BFF, a memoir of friendship lost and found, is out now. Welcome back to Pop Fiction Women, Christy. I'm so happy to be here. I'm I'm such a true, true fan of the work that you guys do. It is just unbelievable. What a gem your podcast oh is. My gosh. You're thank biased, you so but really, much. thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take it. You're biased, but but we will absolutely take it. And I need to start at the end, Christy. I need to go to the acknowledgments because <laughs> there is a very special person mentioned in your acknowledgments, not once but twice. And let's not even count the shout out she gets on like page 159. (laughs) And that is our Corinne um, of Pop Fiction Women, Corinne. Uh, So this is a book clearly from the title even uh, that about your lifelong struggle with female friendships. But it seems as if uh, your relationship with Corinne is clearly a bright spot in that friendship journey. So I would really like to embarrass Corinne and read <laughs> from your acknowledgments, uh, if I Please may. Please do. Okay. Please do. So thank you to Corinne Jade, my ride or die. I've covered more than 100 miles walking through my neighborhood while we hashed out our lives and books on the phone. I'm hoping to cover thousands more. None of this happens without a friend like you to hold my hand and cheer me on. I mean, oh, you know, I my copy of the book doesn't have the acknowledgments, and so I asked I had to, take a to, send, to send them to me just because I wanted to read them, and then, oh, yeah, that was so. This wasn't wonderful. just to embarrass Corinne. I really do want to hear about how Corinne supported you on this journey, these walks. Tell tell us about it. Well, I think Corinne is my very first pure writing friend. I met her when we were both young. We we probably didn't think we were young at the time, but we were young. We were young lawyers and writers, and we had big dreams. And I met her through an online writing community, and I I had always dreamed of having writer friends, and she was the first. Mm -hmm. And she's a leader to me in going after what she wanted around writing and starting things. And we have not had any um terrible like blow-ups no. so she's not in the book um, <laughs> the, the friends who escaped some of my bad habits and you know some of the bad ways I've behaved in friendship they're in the book and the people who escaped are, are just in the acknowledgement so she's I, I bet she considers herself lucky nobody wants to be a chapter in BFF I gotta tell you I would have taken it 
I would have taken it because, and I said this when you gave me the book, I'm like, just tell me where, where we are in this narrative, because I had no issue. I didn't think I would read it and go, oh God, that's not who we are. I, I know us and I know we're friends and we're going to keep being friends no matter what. So I was like, just, just let me be prepared for what this is going to be. And you know, you were like, oh, you're not in it. And I also was like, not sure how to feel about that. <laughs> That's right. I'm like, where's our big right. blow up? Where's our? Yes. No, but it is amazing. I could relate to this book in so many ways. I've had fraught female friendships as well. And Christy, you and I have talked about maybe where, where some of those origins come from, family stuff, but I've had that too. And you and I, our friendship has been very pure. You make me the most honest and authentic version of me at all times. And it's such a, I feel the same way. So it's such a pleasure to have you in my life. Aww. Well, one one thing that this reminds me of is like in the early days of our friendship before I had done the work of this book, I was beside myself with so much envy of you. Like you had this big life and I, I have a whole thing about New York and New York yeah. City and what people who live there just like they get so many extra points and you had these writing opportunities and I would just be like, how did you get that? And I think that had I not been doing this work that I think that we could have ended up on some rocky, yeah. <laughs> some rocky shoals. Yeah. But I had this, some of the work that's encapsulated in the book kept me from like totally shipwrecking us with my envy and scarcity thinking maybe maybe except i don't think i would have let you go i don't think i would have been like you try to ghost me and i'd be like here i am i'm back yeah corinne doesn't do that yeah (laughs) she's like "Uh uh-uh nope nope yeah so (laughs) that's great so but yeah no i yeah no they're they're having and i'm sorry reese witherspoon book pick book publishing deal got an agent all of these things i mean you don't i've certainly had my moments of envy of you and so but that's i don't know that's life and also didn't we talk about this once envy is like a sign post right like that yes so it that is what it is and yeah, big difference between you. envy and jealousy, which your book talks about, but I just read another book that had a whole chapter on that. So okay. envy is, yeah, it's, yeah. you can look and see things that you might want as well. And you don't want to take it away from the other person. You just, it's right. showing you what you might want to go after. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, well, it's obviously not just me. This book is full of your journey and uh, it starts with Meredith. Now, when you first gave me the book, I was swamped at the time and I was like, but I couldn't not crack it. So I opened it and read the prologue and I kid you not, tears were just falling out of my eyes. I know I texted you the same, but it was so beautiful. It's The writing is lyrical and you know you're about to be gutted, but yet I trusted you as the writer, not even you as my friend, as the, as the author here. I trusted that you were going to hold me while we dismantled so many feelings and emotions. And I I love that. But the acknowledgments say that this was not always the beginning of the book. So tell us about Mm -hmm. how you figured out where to start and when you knew Meredith would kind of be the spine of this journey for you. Yeah, I was really convinced for almost two years that the beginning of this book was this very dramatic moment in my life. It was the moment when I realized I I engaged in some self-harm around a friendship issue 
And I realized with such stunning clarity that if I didn't deal with my relationships with women and take them seriously, I was going to get hurt. And I understood that much quicker in my relationships with men. I was so much more distraught so much sooner. <laughs> and I had sort of thought, ah, women, friendship, like, it's not going to kill me <laughs> to not work on it. And I realized, I mean, it's a very far leap from self-harm to killing me, but I just began to take it really, really seriously. And I, it's a dramatic, it was dramatic in my own understanding of myself and who I was. So I was sure that was the beginning of the book. And I workshopped this book. I did an online workshop with Melissa Phoebos and everyone in there was like, no, 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 no. We don't know you. We don't care about this thing that happened to you. We don't know what it means. And I was really like, I didn't care. (laughs) This is really (laughs) fixated. I think because I was trying to write and put this together maybe before I really understood like the Mm. injury that I perpetrated on myself was part of a very big story. It wasn't the beginning of anything. It wasn't the inciting incident. It was really comes more towards the end. Mm. And so once I finally, I mean, I think finally my agent was like, oh no, what happened was we gave it to, we gave it to my editor and she was like, uh, we don't know what this is. <laughs> um, try again. And so I had to go back to come back home in my little home office. And then my agent, Amy Williams, made the suggestion like she just zeroed in on Meredith and who was always a part of the story, but she wasn't, she certainly wasn't like an organizing principal. <laughs> and once that friendship locked in as like a frame, then I could see that was a way to make the story rich and full and not just about one incident in my body. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, see, I did not know this backstory. I can't imagine it not with Meredith as the framework. I love to hear the the evolution of things. I want to go back even a little bit further to, because you're talking about once you knew you were writing this about friendship, just even how you came to know that this was what you needed to write about following group. I mean, you're, or that this was even, even this, when you knew this was your own personal journey you had to go on. I mean, cause you talk in the book about, in the beginning of the book about how you thought once you had things figured out, quote unquote, with men, you know, you had met your husband, you're like, okay, well, I'm good. I mean, clearly you're a therapy person. I'm sure you didn't think you were done, done, but you thought you had sort of at least one piece of the puzzle had sort of locked into place. And then you met Meredith at a meeting and this woman, you called her a witch, which I loved. We love witchy people. When they say prophetic things, that's what we mean by that. She's like, oh, great. Now you can work on your other relationships. And you're like, what? No, no, wait, what? Like, can I get sort of a hot second here to just like (laughs) take a minute and so that to me, I loved that because uh, that would be so that seemed like at least on your own journey where that clicked in for you. So I'd love to hear more about that. And then just how you decided that, all right, well, this is why this is the next book that I need to write. Yeah, I definitely in real life, the events, it really was the moment. It feels like the moment I got settled, you know, after dating disastrously for many years, <laughs> I settled down with the man who would become my husband and Meredith, who'd been in my peripheral. We went to 12 step meetings together for a decade and she like tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, well, now you can work on your friendships is essentially what she said. And I was 
horrified. <laughs> Just like you said, Kate. I was like, what? oh, no, this is the part of life where I get to coast. Yeah. I'll do some charitable work <laughs> and I'll, you know, I'll discover great hobbies that enrich the earth. I don't know what I thought I would do. I did not think I was going to jump back in the arena, the bloodied arena of building intimacy and looking at all the skills that I'd lack to gain by the time I became an adult. And the, it's like, it did feel like she was a witch. Do you, you know, those moments when someone says something and it wasn't in your consciousness, but mm-hmm. it rings in you like a very clear gong, like, oh my God, she's totally yeah. right. Like there's work to do it. I, I've had moments like that before and I haven't been able to turn away from them. So I was reluctant but I also knew, well, she said it. I feel it. It just, it had a feeling of inevitability about it. And I knew it was going to suck and it did. And also interpersonal work. I just like, let's not pretend it feels good. It's not a massage. No. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's growth edge. It's not a it's massage. Icky. It's <laughs> icky. And, and it's totally worth it. And I built my life around doing it all the time. And it's it is absolutely worth it but when when i'm in it or even when i'm at the precipice getting ready to go over and jump in it's not an easy decision mm. it's not it's it's not something to be taken lightly i'd say yeah no 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 but, but it makes a great book it does it does, <laughs> it does. and and also you know you know this anyway ignoring the work doesn't mean it's not there right it, the the work right. to be done it's still waiting there for you um, at which I think ties find you. Yeah, and it and it's just continues to build, right? Until it becomes something that you can no longer ignore. And I think that part of that for me starts when you're very young uh, and siblings, right? And we've talked mm-hmm. about this too. There's a passage um, that you're celebrating with your parents, and your dad introduces you and your brother to to someone else at, at the meeting, and he and then he goes on and he says. There's our youngest, Virginia. She's our sobriety baby. She's our miracle. And I want to read a little more. I didn't hear a single word after miracle. I felt a shiver of satisfaction in finally hearing someone say it. Virginia is a miracle. Miracles were extraordinary. They were inexplicable. They were straight from the heart of God. Virginia was a miracle. I was a reason to get drunk. And then you go on. The meeting had finally ended and and you say, I got that corner piece of cake that you were eyeing. The flowers felt greasy on the roof of my mouth and the sweetness clung to my tongue. And you had a second piece and you tried for a third, but your mom was on to you. And she says, your mom warned me about the stomach ache from all the sugar, but she was wrong. Sugar made it possible to live in my body and carry the blame I was sure belonged on my shoulders. Mm. I don't know if there has ever been a more perfect singular portrayal of what it what I think is what it's like to be a middle child there's mm. the constant comparison of a second born and then also the overflated sense of responsibility for a younger sibling I mean that page just blew my mind in so many ways um, I want want to talk about birth order and how that helped your middle child and how that maybe led into or was the foray into this triangulation that you would find yourself in so many times or or anything about that that you've I know you've 
Can uncovered. I just say this is interesting because we have one of each on the phone. I'm a youngest, Corinne's an oldest, and you're a middle child. So we all oh my have God, different I just got chills. perspectives yes. on this. So yeah. this is interesting. Oh my God, this yeah. is fascinating. I, I have always been obsessed with birth order, like even before it was like, all kinds of articles in the cut or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but and I think I think that the way that I understood myself is I really believed that because there was tons of chaos in my family when I was born and it was a bad it was just a bad time. <laughs> like I came at a bad time and <laughs> my parents were very overwhelmed. There was an active addiction in the household and my older brother, who was fourteen months older, he was just one of those babies that's just chill. Like he was chill. He never cried. He smiled early. Like did he was an easy baby, which fits into a chaos family a lot better than me who burst into the scene. I I think of myself and I always thought of myself as kind of uninvited, (laughs) you know, like it just wasn't the right time. Mm -hmm. And so here I come and I cried all the time. I probably had colic, you know, but I absorbed the, the feelings of my family. I absorbed you know, a baby knows when they're a pain in the ass. And that's exactly what I was. And so (laughs) what happened in the intervening years between my birth and my sister's was, you know, my dad found sobriety, which is a wonderful, that is the miracle. The miracle is having a family get, you know, the fire extinguished and the family gets to move forward without the overhang of active addiction. But I only could understand my sister as a miracle So then I just metabolized those facts as I understood them (laughs) as I wasn't good enough. So they had to try for a better girl. And I, I just walked through life with this idea that like, I'm, I'm sort of toxic. I'm going to make you drink alcoholically. And there's definitely someone around the corner who's just going to swoop in, have great teeth and hair and just usurp me and expose all my frailties and I'll just be out on my ass. Yeah. <laughs> like that's a real hard way to go into the middle school, grammar school, high school, mm-hmm. trying to make friends with that sort of paradigm ready for anybody to come, a rival to come and take all my love and attention. Yeah. Caused a lot of problems. Yeah. And you were already set up with that. You yeah. were like, this is how it goes. And so people would come into your life not even wanting to necessarily play those roles, but you were like, oh, yeah. but I know these roles. And so you're the one who's going to overshadow me. And yeah, you you could just kind of put them right into that mold that you had already had. Absolutely. Yeah. I was working from that script and I conscripted yeah. other people to play those roles, even if they were just like, hey, want to come over and play? Right. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, okay you're going to be my little sister. Yeah. And, yeah. and we're off, you know. Yeah. You're like, oh, I know this. Gosh. It's so funny because I was a really difficult baby, too. But but there's a difference between the firstborn difficult baby. I actually had yeah. two. My firstborn was a difficult baby. My secondborn was an easy one. So it's, you know, it's such a, like, a, you know, these things are a whole soup of things, right? <laughs> and totally. each and, and every little pinch of salt or pepper changes how it all kind of feels in the end. But, oh, yeah, you just captured that so beautifully. Thank you. You were extra pepper, basically. <laughs> yeah, I was a lot of spice, a lot of spice. Exactly. And they uh, needed to be on a very bland diet in my house. Right, right, right. So I know this is a book about friendship, but for me, the uh, relationship with Meredith and then losing her, which is not a spoiler, uh, the grief around that was really, really 
hard for me. Um, I, I promise I'll get to a question, but it's a little bit of a long windup. Um, I was just thinking before we got on that the only time I've ever cried on in an interview on here was with um, Tembi and Attica Locke yeah. uh, talking about From Scratch, uh, the adaptation of her memoir. And it was about the scene in the, in the show where she loses her husband. The deathbed scene is what right. I call it. And yes. I started crying on there for obvious reasons, but it was very, very moving. But, you know, I had lost my father and I said that it was – I had never quite seen it depicted – the that particular kind of grief i do think yeah. i don't rank grief but watching someone die i said on there was uh, I, I didn't think people could really adequately put it into words and you did this again i thought maybe it was the visual medium of that show you know watching it but i was reading your scene with meredith and i was on the treadmill we joked earlier that i <laughs> i like movement i read a lot while walking and I just started bawling. I mean, so it wasn't like I was curled up with on the couch, you know. I mean, I was like walking hard and I was like, Wah! just so, so now I know that basically it is deathbed scenes that really, really get me. Um, but, but I don't think it's any of them. And I think that's what I'm trying to say is that you conveyed that, um, what that felt like in words so beautifully, so relatably. Um, it was really, really touching. And, and then the, you went right after it to all the questions. You sort of had this list of questions and that's exactly what you do. They're basically like, oh my God, did I do enough? Like, should I have done this? Like all the, all the things, because it's, you, if you've never experienced it before, you just start judging how well you handled it. Um, and so I thought that was so right. So exactly how I felt too. Um, and then you just, the way you describe grief, I mean, you say like, um, what after she passed, you said, you know, you basically, of course you had to go on with your life. And you said, I did what grieving people do carried on in my life with a gnawing pervasive sense of something of having a wound. No one else could see. Uh, and you know, we talked to Lisa today. and she had said that, it, um, grief was like a shark bite. I'm like, yeah, except you're bleeding out and nobody sees the blood. They don't, they're like, what, you know, whatever, you're fine now. Um, and you called it messy and unpredictable and how grief involves the whole body. And I'm just like, yes, you just described it so well. So first of all, thank you. That was, I just thought you did that so beautifully. Um, so, you know, did this book writing this help you sort of process your grief uh, of Meredith's loss? I do think that it helped me get to the most sublime appreciation of her. Mm. I think that this book helped me stay very close to her and all of our adventures because so much of our friendship was just one-on-one -on -one, and no one, no one knew my, my kids knew I went to the share concert with her. My husband was out of town. We didn't, we didn't have like a group that supported us. It was just the two of us. So having this in a book and then have people ask me about her keeps her so close to me. And it really feels like, I, I don't, I don't totally know. I mean, I say this in the book, I don't totally know what happens in the afterlife. And I don't know that she talks to me or anything like that. 
but it has been an extraordinary way to keep her very close. Mm. And I still hear her voice in my head. And I've talked to other people who were close to her and they say the same thing. So maybe you don't have to write a book <laughs> to, yeah. do, to keep people close. But the fact that I have and I get to have all these conversations about her and what she meant to me, I just can feel it has deepened the impact of our relationship on me. So that has been a huge, huge blessing and a surprise. I didn't really, I mean, it doesn't sound surprising that it happened, but I didn't know going into it that that's, I would be memorializing her mm. and our friendship in this whole new way. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I love that. And you, even before this book, you had written some essays around it and, you know, so maybe just writing as a process helped you, but this book is Definitely. more about keeping her close, right? Right. And I think I'm so glad I wrote those essays in advance and she knew about them. She saw drafts mm -hmm. of them and they were about, I mean, one of them super subtle. It's called My Friend Meredith is Dying. <laughs> super subtle. Um, she's like, oh, what's this about? <laughs> and um, I'm so happy that we got to, I, when I saw the look on her face, when I told her I'd been writing about her and showed her the essay, she had the reaction, like any middle child, you know, that I knew she would have, which was, oh, my God, I can't believe I matter enough that you would mm. write about me. And she she was so flattered. I mean, there's no other way to put it. She was flattered, surprised, honored. Mm -hmm. And I think that having had those experience, it freed me up to feel like I had her permission yeah. to go book length on this. And I didn't have to worry about totally getting it right and... I didn't have to like subpoena her medical records <laughs> to be sure. She didn't care about all of that. Yeah. Um, and because we had had a little preview, I was freed up, which was just a huge gift. Yeah. Oh, yes. I didn't even think about it that way. That is. Oh, and I love, I mean, I think it's, that's more the middle child. I think anyone is like, wait, I matter enough to that you would write yeah, about me. Yeah. It's just such a. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. By the way, a lot of that brings me back to remembering like when this was happening in your real life and, and that essay, so beautiful. But okay, um, I want to talk about pain. And we were also talking about, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about perfectionism and mm -hmm. like how you kind of always expect to get it right. <laughs> and yeah. that's a lot in this book, something we could relate to. Um, so I want to read a little bit. While it was comforting to hear that Meredith could relate to me, I wanted us both to be different. For all the work we did on ourselves, shouldn't we have achieved more emotional stability? Was it too much to ask that we not harm our bodies with our fingernails or chocolate milk when confronted with intense fear, anger, sadness, and grief? How much more work did we need to do? And was it even a matter of us working harder, or was this one of those spiritual paradoxes where we would find profound unshakable serenity once we stopped working so damn hard to change ourselves i didn't hate myself for having blind spots or for tripping up but it messed with my identity as someone who was mostly sane and functional someone with the gritty emotional work of her life behind her i would have sworn that i was done committing great harm to myself but that simply wasn't true and i didn't want to accept that a cornerstone of my identity had turned to dust and then later a few pages later Meredith tells you like pain is also how it feels when you're healing right so there's the yeah. the the self-inflicted pain that's n that you do want to try to 
put away and move past. But then there's also the pain of healing. And especially in that part of the process, it can be hard to realize you've gone from one to the other or speaking from my point of view. What do you think about that? Did you have a hard time? Moving from like pain that was just self-inflicted to the the good kind yeah, of pain, yeah, because like healing. because that's what you're doing still is self-inflicting pain when you're like, ugh, I, I I'm not past this, right? You're totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. I still am very confused about all of this. <laughs> I really, I mean, I am still a perfectionist. I still have unreasonable expectation of myself and others that trip me up fairly regularly, despite twice a week therapy and lots of 12-step meetings. So I, I do feel confused about all of it. Even the first part you read, I sometimes feel like, is there a way in which I'm hiding in the emotional, the deep emotional work I'm doing? Is that at the cost of just like breathing mm-hmm. and like kind of living my life, which, oh my God, the minute I do that, I'm like, I'm coasting, I'm not growing. <laughs> So I just, my head is like yes. a, is like a funhouse mirror yeah. and I really rely on other people and the recovery around me and sort of like, I just have to not take any of my thoughts too seriously because they're so wacky. Um, but I do, you're right that there's a certain, I guess what, what I would think about when I think about growth, I think about, is it discomfort Mm -hmm. like I try to think about like pain the self-inflicted self-abusive pain that I am will be in recovery until the day I die from that's so just painful and the stuckness and the agony of that and then there's just the discomfort and the breathlessness of growth like could I do something different could I pick up the phone or could I walk away depending on what the growth action is It's really, if I really get into the language of it, which as a writer, I probably should more often, but that's less about pain than it is just about, I am so uncomfortable. And I think if I start hearing myself, I've just recently been sort of experimenting with this. If I hear myself say, oh, I'm uncomfortable, then I'm I'm quicker to understand I'm growing. Like it's like my kids are... I think my son's going through a growth spurt and it's like his body hurts, like his legs, yeah. like my legs hurt and he hasn't done anything to hurt them. And I'm like, I think those are growth pains, buddy. It's like, same uh, with mama. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that if I could, if I could do a little bit of reframing or crystallizing the language a little better, more pre- precise language, maybe I would like be quicker to embrace the discomfort instead of just being like life is all pain (laughs) yeah but but growth has such a positive connotation right and but and so you think well I'm growing like I should feel better like I should yeah growing look at how I've grown and evolved but like what you're saying made so much more sense to me I mean those lines I'm like yeah that's it's like you said before it's not a massage it's really not it's it, it, it there is pain in that sometimes it's a letting go of something and or whatever and that's not always so sunny it's amazing right it's amazing that growth does have such a positive connotation because it always is there's some pain yes and there and growing pains are called growing pains for a reason like it is painful because you are breaking out of something and extending yourself so far beyond your current mold your current status and that's painful (laughs) yes yeah yes I think there's an idea I have that growth should feel like soaring yeah like a runner's high yes 
but but the runner's high comes after the growth and you're being able to run Mm -hmm. and so I'm sort of I mean I, I I come from addiction I have my own addiction issues so of course I'm like everything should feel like a high and it's very disappointing that that's not how that's not how <laughs> that's not how it works. Yeah. yeah. Or even still, the the high can still come, but it comes after right. the effort, the pain, the, you know, the growth. Yeah. 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 And that just leads so nicely into my mm-hmm. next question, because um, the growth, the arc that you have in this story um is so good. I feel like in memoirs, sometimes it's hard. I think they should have a good arc, but you know, that's not so easy to do. And you have really done that here. And it also helps like, because there'll be some people who might relate more to the earlier chapters where they really have had these struggles in friendships. And there's going to be other people who maybe relate like to the Meredith relationship and the grief or then to your growth at the end. So there's really like there's something for everyone. And on our regular episodes, you know, we, we do these takeaways and um, it's whatever little nugget that Corinne or I have taken away from, from a book or a show or movie. Um, and I had so many from yours if we were doing a regular episode. So I want to share some of them. I mean, you can comment on them or not, but I just, from beginning to end, like these are the things that I sort of took away. I mean, one is that friendships need tending to. Um, you know, we have this notion that like, oh, well, friendship should be easy. You know, those, those just take care of themselves. And like related to that, you said all the tools for romantic relationships work for friendships. So the fact that you have to cultivate all relationships, really, um, if you expect to be a perfect friend, you're going to fail. Just be a good enough friend. So for the perfectionists on here, I have trouble with this good enough thing. Christy, you do. You're nodding your head. Same, same, same. I'm like, what is that? I don't want to be good enough. Good enough, you know. But it, in, I felt like when Meredith said that to you in friendship, like, stop it. You are going to get things wrong, right? We are going to mm-hmm. mess up. But just be a good enough friend. And, and then you ended up probably being way more than that. But um, this one is really my favorite. Um, Because it feels so true. Unworthiness is a lie we tell ourselves. You know, you talk about um, self-harm, you know, you said, and I I don't have that experience, but I do have the um, telling myself um, in a high, I have a very hypercritical inner voice. And, you know, this really felt true. I mean, that is a way to harm yourself, not physically, but, you know, emotionally and other ways. So, um, and then the last one was what to value, what you value most in friendship, which you is sort of like, I felt like a takeaway for you in the end, but you can tell me someone who wants to own her own part and do the work of understanding herself. And I was like, amen to that. And that's also <laughs> true of all relationships. I only yeah. want to be with people yes. who do those things. Right. Yes. 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 Yeah. I mean, it's okay to have standards. Right. And I'm like, (laughs) after, you know, I've written this book and I've lived the events in the book. I did come to the conclusion like, oh, my intimates, my friends are going to be these. And they already are. I mean, they already are. I mean, lots. it's not like it's a many, many, many people, friends out there are doing work and looking at their part. And so I've got lots to choose from. But if somebody's not interested in that, which is also super valid, Mm -hmm. like we're just not they're not going to be in the bullseye part of my circle. They'll be somewhere somewhere out. And to your point about the other one about unworthiness as a lie, Mm -hmm. I would say one of the greatest things about my relationship with Meredith, kind of the buddy system 
that we sort of and in, not invented that we like used as we were doing our friendship work, I could really see the ways that she got in her own way. I could see it so clearly in her mm. and not in my I couldn't see I was doing the exact same way. I'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you telling yourself those terrible things? And one time we were this isn't in the book, but one time we were standing on the street corner and I was mad. I was mad at her because she was <laughs> there was some way in which she was like not understanding how big she was and how much she mattered. And she was denigrating herself. And I was like, I, we had just both seen Hamilton. And I was like, you think you're a Peggy, but you you're an Angelica. <laughs> and I'm just screaming at her. You're not a Peggy. You're not a Peggy. That's so good. And she was like and she was just like her whole face softened. And she's like, you think I'm an Angelica? Oh. I'm like, Yes! yes! Stop acting like Peggy! Whatever! <laughs> and that's just the intersection of American musical theater yeah. into our friendship. Yes. But yeah. We do it too. You know, it, yeah. <laughs> it just really helped to see, because then I was like, why did I think I could see that so clearly in Meredith? Because I was doing it all over the place in my relationships, mm-hmm. at work, with my children, and it's like, at some point, you do get to make a decision to, like, cut that shit out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love that. I love that you said intimates or intimacy uh, intimacy is a word that is still so connected to romantic partnerships and it is that has been the best part of understanding friendships and what works and what doesn't work for me is identifying the intimacy there and like where and that is it's not limited to it's it's not romantic it's not physical in that in that same sense of like sex or or kissing or whatever it is it's not the same intimacy that way but otherwise it's really all the same thing it's about being vulnerable it's about someone who shares things and and i that has been the biggest eye opener for me it was was allowing that word to be like this is an intimate relationship that we have like Mm -hmm. you can't pretend that it's not and i will also say that that is something that you and i got right from the start was tending to our friendship always tending to it and so even when behind the scenes you know we're going oh she has this and I want it you know (laughs) right it was that just felt for me it fell away so much easier knowing what what we did have the way we tended to each other I mean we and we're both very intense people who like a lot (laughs) (laughs) a lot of one-on-one time and so uh that that worked for both of us I think that's true I also I also in my the story in my head, which seems true, is that you're really good at being steady and staying in touch. And I have always felt like you really would, like you said earlier, you really wouldn't let me like vaporize. Like that's where I just tend to be like, oh, we haven't talked in a few weeks. That's going to be weird. I guess we're done. Yeah. I guess that friendship's <laughs> over. You know, like it just there were lots of places where, out of my own just lack of skill, to say it very basically. If things were going to be weird, I was like, well, okay, I'll just let go because that's how scared I was of weird conversations and awkward, where have you been questions or things I didn't, wasn't sure I wanted to hear or say. It just seemed easier to be like, all right, well, you can just go into the history file. And I'm so grateful for my friends who were like, uh, no, that's not how we're doing this. And now I can be a person who's like, I don't let go nearly as easily as I used to, which is a very good thing. Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you, though. Let me get that correct your record. I am a <laughs> famous ghoster. You, really? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you are 
you were the absolute first and maybe like the truest one of like, I just won't let you go. And I don't have the skill to do that. You know, there was something also about the physical distance between us, right? We, yeah. we were, especially early in our relationship, we were often emailing, texting, you know, that kind of stuff where it doesn't feel so loaded to reach out again. And I True. just was like, but that is why I preferred romantic relationships because when they are over, they are over. And when yes. you when you leave, when I'm done, it's over. So I don't need well, to for like for you. It's over. Yeah, for it's career, true. it's really over. There's no. Yeah. she's it's, not googling you. You're no, done. You're out. So <laughs> true. And so that is absolutely not who I am. And that is something I found with you through you and our friendship, one hundred percent. And let me tell you, I don't know if this is not nice. It's not everyone. I don't. <laughs> Well, have you read the book? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I want to move to astrology because... Please, yeah, obviously. Okay. <laughs> well, we talked about it last time and I focused a little bit uh, because of the nature of group and how you were leading up to finding a, a real, true, important romantic partnership. I focused a lot on your marriage and your compatibility there. Uh, but since then... In fact, very recently, you went and did a whole astrological chart reading. How did that, when we talked about it a little bit, but how did that feel for you? It was awesome and mind-blowing. Yeah. I could not believe this This woman, who astrologer, who read my chart, was so technical. And she was showing me a map of the world on the minute I was born and what was happening in my dot in Dallas, Texas, it felt so legitimate and sciencey that I was like, okay, tell me more. <laughs> and I couldn't believe like she said that the things that really stuck out were probably the things that a I wanted to hear or really resonated with me. And one of them was, you know, when you were born, your mother was extremely, extremely maxed out emotionally and very stressed. And I was like, yeah, she totally was. Like, of course she was, you know. And that there was something about, I felt flooded with a sense of compassion. I already have that for both of my parents because it's not easy to be young and battling mm -hmm. addiction and have two young kids. Like, ouch, that sucks. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't feel like I carry around a big burden of, like, blame or angst. And it just gave me another level of forgiveness and compassion and just a window, like, cosmically cosmically we were stressed as a family and it just felt like we're all just a little more off the hook than we were before and I really really loved that it was an incredibly healing experience oh I love that yeah mm. yeah and you know for people who take so much on themselves being let off the hook is a such a gift mm. for people who are always slothing off responsibility, then you, you know, then being let off the hook is a crutch that is not helping you to take, yeah. what, own what's yours. But as someone who is constantly like, and I know you're this way and I'm this way, constantly taking on more than we uh, need to, um, as far as guilt and blame and responsibility yes. goes, right? That being off, let off the hook in that way is such a wonderful thing. And I loved that. And Kate, what are what are some of the we Kate and I talked a little bit about some of your well, chart that, and how similar. In, yeah, yeah, we're both born in July, but you are Cancer and I'm a Leo, so that was you know what I knew from before. 
Um, but I, when I was reading this, I texted Corinne and I didn't even know you had done a chart or anything. And I was just like, what did I ask? What's your Venus? I asked yes. where your Venus placement was because that's how you connect with other people. People say it's how you love, but it's to our earlier conversation. It's really how you connect intimately. So that could be friendships and other relationships. And she said, you are a Venus in Venus. Leo, which yes. is me Leo. as oh. well. And it was confusing for me at first because I'm like, so Venus and Leo, like we, we really love love. Like Leo's, you know, we love attention. And so, you know, we need a big love and big declarations of love. And, you know, think of every rom-com movie. This is what I'm thinking. So I'm like, I don't know. With Christy, does this track? But really, it, it does. Because, right, like if you're not getting that level of affirmation and attention <laughs> and like. Right, it feels horrible to us. It really does. Yes. It feels worse. I'm just, I'm trying to see, like, it makes sense, right? Like, oh, like, and now that doesn't mean people can go around in real life, like, adoring you and putting you on a pedestal all the time. <laughs> but there is probably some little part of us when we don't feel we're getting loved in that big way that feels so much worse, I think, yeah. to us. And that was 100%. the journey of group, too, was yes. like how badly that was important and how, how you needed that for for you yeah 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 I think too like something about whatever system of thought astrology or recovery or Buddhism whatever people use if it helps people like me come to understand themselves without shame or yeah. pathologizing every single longing or especially for women uh, like yes. so much of our longing and yearnings have been beat out of us by all kinds of forces so if I can tap into anything that says, oh, this is who you are, this is kind of in the stars, and mm -hmm. you like big love. The other thing she told me I'm curious about, because I know neither of you are cancers, she said to me... I have a lot of well, cancer in my chart. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about this. She said to me, oh, you are going to get a lot of attention. So of course I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, she said, but not everyone is going to love you. And cancers really really want to be beloved mm. and I mean that's the truest thing you could ever say about me but I'm like doesn't everyone want to be beloved like what's your relationship to this notion of like being beloved yeah I think that is spot on and it's it is a very nuanced yes every single person wants to be loved and but it's kind of like how right if you want to take the Leo just as we were talking about, like the spotlight, the shine, put her on a pedestal. And, and it's there's a singularity to it, but it, it's got to come from somewhere. So there has to be a relationship. But being beloved is more like it doesn't matter who or how intense. It's like just knowing that. And that to me, I think of family. Yeah, I think of cancer. children. Yeah, I think of like beloved is like being yeah. held in some way i'm using my totally hands totally right okay. which is slightly different from you know being loved yeah. in a like we were talking about in the leo way so yeah. that rings very true to me i mean i also hope that they confirm that you're definitely in the right profession because you also <laughs> i understand have leo mercury and leo right yeah. Corinne? yes okay so that's how you communicate and those are really creative storytellers. And creativity yes. is really important to people uh, with Mercury and Leo. And then I read this this morning that I oh, feel yay. like I have to read to you about Mercury and Leo. 
Um, Please. Dep- depending on the confidence level of, oh, by the way, I'm also Mercury and Leo. So that's, a, sorry, it's another, another way in which another, we are yes. similar. Um, depending on the confidence level of the whole individual with this placement of Mercury, a stubbornness in the face of criticism or oversensitivity to anything less than praise is present. Whatever the reaction, Mercury and Leo natives can be mentally arrogant. Hold on, though. Mercury, by nature, is detached and reasonable. In Leo, however, the ego comes into play very strongly when it comes to intellectual analysis. With intellect and ego so closely tied, the ability to separate fact from fiction can be impaired. In some, boasting may be a problem. Probably the best way to handle this position is to find self-expression in some creative field. Mercury and Leo natives can be magnificent storytellers, for example, mainly because they have such a wonderful sense of drama. They speak and write <laughs> with heart. And you do speak and yeah, write right. with heart and oh, vulnerability. Absolutely. Oh, my so God. I just feel as if the stars are confirming this yes. is your... You're calling the self-expression. The stars are confirming what Reese Witherspoon saw. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Reese, she just knows things. Yeah, she does. Wow, that's incredible. She Thank does. you for reading that. Yeah. That really, like, now that I think about it, the woman who read my chart, she kept calling me a storyteller. Yeah. And I have to say, there was a part of me that was, like, resistant that still feels like, I'm a lawyer who maybe got lucky with a book mm, kind of thing. Yeah. Like, and I, I'm like, every day I'm like, do I have to go back to being a lawyer? Cause I was able to let it go for a while. Mm-hmm. So it's very funny that I am, I'm still like, there's some part of me resisting destiny, if we'll call it that. Yes. Um, yeah. And resistance is clearly futile. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, in my astrologer kept, he sort of translated that and probably other things in my chart. He kept calling me a teacher. And I'm like, I'm not a teacher. Like, I'm a lawyer. Like, my parents were teachers. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're like, you're taking this too literally. Like, you're you're meant to communicate ideas and and thoughts and feelings. That could be in writing. That could be in a podcast. That could be in any. I'm like, oh, all right. I, I hear you. So it's interesting. I love it. I love it. Thank you guys for, like, not backing away from your like genuine engagement with astrology. I mean, I think the world is much more open to other systems of belief and knowledge, but I'm just grateful that you guys, it wasn't, it's clearly not a passing phase for you guys. (laughs) Not when it keeps being so, such a useful tool for us. I'm like, (laughs) don't keep giving me further proof. It's Um, true. Yeah. Well, I have to ask, what's next for you, Christy? What's going on? You're writing. I, I do. I have. I joked with Grant. I put this in our document that I, I really. I did not prompt this, but go no. ahead. Oh yes. God, no! <laughs> I, is there something to this? I'm like, I want to know what you're working on, but I really want you to write the novel you mentioned on page 161 about a modern day Jane Eyre who works at a law firm with a therapist <laughs> named Dr. Rochester. I, that is the best idea ever. I'm like, why did she only oh write God. a few chapters? of that where is that can i get like a little piece of it that is the best oh my idea. god kate it's so bad i it might is revisit not. that i cause... read it <laughs> did you it's uh, a some, some of it it is so good kate it's very much like the book you read of mine too like similar oh you know i love that law firms. So, yeah exactly loved that yes. too but oh my gosh i love it but anyway i assume you're not working on that even though i want you to be <laughs> No, that is that's in the uh, that's in the compost heap, which doesn't okay. mean it will not, you know, be part of my future mushroom crop. But yeah. um, I, you know, I'm working on something right now that 
the what I'm I'm like what if I just make a piece of art or do some writing that includes all the things I'm super fired up about. So that means this work of art is going to be all about perimenopause, okay. injectables, mm-hmm. um, diet culture. I mean, this is like, okay, this is going to be a very fat thing, but I'm just interested in how, how can a woman who's in the sandwich generation, I mean, just like whatever. I mean, this is like, I'm probably just describing my next memoir, but I'm, I'm trying my hand at a novel just to, to move away, to let the people in my life get a breathing, some breathing from being written about. <laughs> well, you can write um, about them, just give them a different name. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm just, I'm interested in different for like a form of a novel. I'm imagining like a, a diary and which is, is close enough to memoir that I can just feel like I'm bridging if I do want to go in a mm-hmm. fiction direction. But who knows? It might just be called I Struggled with Injectables, a, a novella by Christy Tate. So we'll see. <laughs> what is the I, struggle? I'm a big fan of injectables. Is this is this like an anti or a, or is this just no, a question? Not, why do we do it? The whole thing. I just feel it's no, it's I'm not. It's an anti. exploration. I'm, yeah, right. It's an exploration. My fear, my my um my idea that like this became the norm oh, yeah. and and then no one the, the part this is the part that really got me I started asking my like I'm 49 I'm like most people start this in their 30s I'm learning I did not know that um it's a new thing, so I I started asking people like oh are you doing injectables and just like you Kate they were like oh yeah girl since 36 I got those 11s and they are gone and <laughs> yeah. First of all, I loved how people were so, nobody, to my knowledge, no one's lied to me, mostly because everyone has said yes, everyone except two people. So I love the openness. I feel like that's good for women. And also, I also was like, why didn't y'all tell me? Like, I feel like no one told me like, oh, we're all doing this thing. And wow, I didn't know. Like I came to the party in one piece and everyone's wearing bikinis. I'm like, wait. So I, I just find the process more. It's an interest in exploration. It's not judgy because I'm sure oh, I'm going to no, do it no, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more like, what is this and how did mm-hmm. I miss it? And what is my relationship to it? Yeah. it? At the end of the day, it might be an essay, but I have questions. Yeah. yeah. And also the perimenopause and where that comes. I was just see, saw Busy Phillips talking about, she was like, I'm nowhere near menopause. Yeah. That's what perimenopause yeah. is nowhere near right. menopause or, or it's a transition and it can be a long transition it's not like the day before <laughs> so right yeah uh, and you know me I'm always with those like why isn't anyone talking about this and yeah yes yeah. yes yeah. well in diet culture all of these things I'm, I'm here for you, you got I, yeah <laughs> we'll see where I, I got a lot of thoughts on that too and a lot of questions <laughs> myself so yes me too love it all love right. it well that's exciting Yes. Um, anything? Uh, that's it. Anything what are else? we loving? Don't we? Oh yes, do yes. Oh, oh, thank loving. you. What are? Of yeah. I'm not used to wrapping up appropriately. I'm like, all right, I'll talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> um, so you know, <laughs> yeah. we always ask. Yes. Yeah. What? Um, what are you loving? Like things you're re- reading. We clearly know what you're thinking about, but um, podcasts, books, movies, TV shows, anything you're obsessed with. Yes, I I just discovered this podcast. It's been around for a long time, but it's two comedians who are married to each other. Moshe, I don't know his last name, but he's married to Natasha Leggero. And they're just so, I just, it's sort of like a window into somebody's marriage. Like you can totally imagine how they talk to each other and they have one child and they have guests come on and they have people call them their secrets and 
and ask for advice and their advice is preposterous and <laughs> it's lighthearted enough with just enough gravitas that I feel like I a voyeur looking at their relationship. What's it and called? I, it's called The Endless Honeymoon. Oh, okay. Perfect. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's been around a while. I, I, I haven't totally like done a deep dive so I understand when the episodes come out and all that stuff. So I'm not all in, but I've just discovered it like three days ago and I've like totally binged like, <laughs> like five hours of them in my head, which I love. And I just read a book. Um, it's a memoir that is absolutely stunning. And it's called Tell Me More. Tell Me More. Um, and Erica Krauss is the writer and it's about her own invest. She got involved in an investigation of like a campus, like basically a campus wide on a college campus, a football scandal where there was like lots of money given to football players to recruit. And they got into all like sex committing sexual mm. assault and just the cover up. And that's all super heavy, but it also intersects with her own experience with sexual um, assaults. And it's such a good balance of, a real world thing and a memoir thing. Yeah. I think they call that, I think they're calling that hybrid these days. Yes. But part memoir, smart. part literary true crime. It's tell me everything. Oh. Tell that me everything. Yes. Fantastic. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is. It is fantastic. And I also just read one other memoir. I think it's about to, I think Sophia Coppola is about to do something with it. Ooh. Or maybe she already did it. Um, it's called Fairyland. And it's a memoir by a woman who lost her father, to the AIDS crisis and they lived in um they lived in San Francisco and they had this like completely bohemian life and and then he got ill and just the struggle it's more about their life together and less about the death but of course his death from AIDS is figures prominently but more it's just a fascinating look at a father-daughter relationship that falls outside the norms and how they still were able to have each other's back and it's really a beautiful story. I loved it. Yeah, I've been seeing that everywhere. I, I think she's she was a Grub Street teacher or alumni or something because Grub Street was the one that kind of alerted me to it. But you're right. It, it's, there's a lot happening with it. Alyssa Abbott, yeah? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah I forgot to yeah. say the author's yes, name. Yeah, yes. that's, I mean, I'm, all, I'm really all about the memoirs. So those have been two really just great Good ones. ones. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Christy. Thank you guys both for having me. It's just a complete thrill. Like what a what a wonderful conversation. You guys are such pros. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. And oh. by the way, low key BFF was very helpful for me with a tween daughter. And I was mm. like navigating a lot of the stuff I didn't navigate in that age. I'm like, "Oh god, this is like real really coming to life right now." So Oh my God! We relive, we relive it with them. It's really painful. Oh, she, Christy, you know. Um, yeah. But but I mean, there's. Some, I mean that to say, there's really truly something for everyone in this yeah. book. There's. It just Thank doesn't you. touch on one aspect of friendship. It really touches on, like, what it's like to not only be a woman, but and and come of age, and all of these these themes are just so beautifully touched on in this book. So BFF. Yes. Thank you so much, Christy. It is such a pleasure. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. 
Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.